This is Maine Coast Doc Talk, a podcast bringing you the latest news and stories from Maine's working waterfronts. This podcast is brought to you by the Maine Coast Fishermen's Association. I'm your host, Ben Martens. Colleen Coogan is the branch chief for the Marine Mammal and Sea Turtle Team in NOAA Fisheries Greater Atlantic Region's Protected Resource Division, quite the business card you have to fill out there. And as such, she is the lead on the Marine Mammal Take Reduction Team, which works to recover and prevent the depletion of strategic marine mammal stocks that interact with certain federal fisheries. And that's determined by the Marine Mammal Protection Act and the Endangered Species Act. But right now, the reason why we're talking Colleen is because the Take Reduction Team is working to protect the Northern Atlantic right whale which is a marine mammal, and it's also critically endangered. So it falls into both of those, those boxes. And the outcome of this work and this process could dramatically change how fishing takes place in the Gulf of Maine. So I asked Colleen to join me today to talk about the take reduction team so we can better understand how it works and where it came from, and then the current process around protecting right whales and you know where we're going over the next few months within that process. So Colleen, thank you for taking the time today to join me and, and talk a little bit about take reduction and right whales and fishermen and everything else. I appreciate the opportunity to break it down. It's a complicated problem. So I, I gave like a Wikipedia answer for what the take reduction team is. Can you take a, a little bit deeper and where did it come from? How does it work in practice? How it works at NOAA, et cetera? Like how, what, what is the take reduction team within the NOAA and fisheries management infrastructure? Okay, great question. So the Marine Mammal Protection Act, as you mentioned, is the source of the guidance on the take reduction process. And essentially it authorizes the unintentional take of marine mammals in fisheries until that take level gets to what is considered unsustainable for a, a marine mammal stock. The term that we use for that is the potential biological removal level. So a stock's potential biological removal level is basically the, the level that can be taken by mortality or serious injury without preventing recovery of the population, put somewhat simply. For North Atlantic right whales, because that stock size is so small, that potential biological removal level is currently 0.7 mortalities and serious injuries in a year. And it's been at less than one a year for a long time now. When it was first uh, determined that takes were above that level of mortality and serious injury, which was back really when the act was amended in the late 1990s, the Atlantic Large Whale Take Reduction Team was put together. So this team has been together since, in some form, since 1996. When PBR is exceeded or the potential biological removal level is exceeded, that's when NOAA puts a team together. And the team is made up of stakeholders that includes fishermen that are, that are the ones that are impacted by any take reduction team regulations. It includes environmental organizations that represent U.S. citizens that are concerned about marine mammal uh, conservation and recovery. It includes academics that have special knowledge about right whales and or about or, or large whales and some of the other science that impacts either takes or right whale conservation. And it includes the federal managers. So that's the Northeast region, the Southeast region headquarters and Mammal Commission. And it includes a manager from every state on the Atlantic coast. So our team is huge. It's about 60 people. 18 of them represent trap pot fishermen. Another five represent gillnet fishermen. 
So fishermen are the largest of the stakeholder groups represented on the team. And then the work of the team really is to, to look at all the science that NIMS brings to them to review incidental take information, to review population information and management information, and then to work together to develop recommendations, preferably consensus recommendations that they make to NIMPS and that we then take and turn into proposed regulations and ultimately into regulations that modify the fisheries that are involved. So, so those, those regulations, let me just hop in there. So like we as an organization engage in regulation creation through Congress, through New England Fishery Management Council, through Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission. Where where does the take reduction team fit into that spaghetti of regulation creation? Yeah, so that's a really good question. And it's not that easy to describe. But there are members of all those regulatory bodies, they, they all have seats. So the New England Council has a seat, Mid-Atlantic Council has a seat, South Atlantic Council has a seat, Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission has a seat, and every state has a seat. So their seats should be advising us sometimes on how we can interact. We do keep those councils and commissions updated regularly. For the most part, I would say the take reduction process is sort of analogous to the council processes, but the take reduction team has to act like the plan development team and like the council. So they help they help develop the measures NIMS goes and tries to do analyses and bring, bring you know, it's an iterative process where we bring it back. And then the, the team vote on the recommendations of how NIMS should go forward, sort of the way the council votes on amendments to regulations. So it's somewhat analogous to the council process, but wrapped up the advisory panel, the plan development teams, and the councils are all sort of the, doing the kind of work with just one team. When we develop regulations. We actually have tried to avoid regulations that are fishery management. So we've tried to avoid regulations that require special permitting or allocations or the kinds of things that fishery managers generally draw on. So most of the measures that are currently in the take reduction plan are really about modifying the gear to be less risky to whales and an area closure, separating whales from rope in areas where either rope or whales are abundant. So we have avoided doing fishery management with the take reduction plan regs, and we prefer that action to happen at the councils and through the council and commission processes. So ultimately, the goal of the take reduction team is to come up with a set of recommendations, and then that gets sent to NOAA, and it goes through their review and approval, disapproval process and the secretary of commerce puts them out into the world is that like is that essentially where where it is or it's that's that is closer to really the council process we get recommendations from the team the last time we got recommendations in 2019 it was a framework of line reduction to weak rope NOAA fisheries job really is to make sure that the recommendations meet the requirements of the marine protection act which is to reduce mortalities and serious injuries to below one a year. So for instance, last time we got the recommendations, some of them changed through state proposals through their own scoping process. And in the end, NOAA Fisheries used the guidance from the team as much as it could, but we ended up modifying the measures when we created our proposed rule. So this time, if we get consensus recommendations, we will try to implement them if they achieve the potential biological removal level, 
ultimately, NOAA Fisheries is the one that's responsible for making sure we hit that level, though, that, that we reduce takes and serious injuries to below the potential biological removal level. That is incredibly helpful. Policy creation is very hard, and this is one of the more difficult processes to participate in and, and engage in because of all those different inputs and the understanding of where the buck finally stops is important for those that are watching from the outside and, and kind of understanding how to engage along the way. So who are you in this process? I am the team lead for a team that is responsible for conservation and recovery of large whales, endangered large whales, protected large whales, and also sea turtles. So we really have a three-pronged approach. One is recovery for right whales, particularly, and for sea turtles. One is we run the the branding response and disentanglement response programs are run off of my team. And the other is marine mammal take reduction. So we have the Atlantic large whale take reduction team. We also have the harbor porpoise take reduction team under my, under my team. I am no longer the take reduction team coordinator. That is actually Marissa Trago, Dr. Marissa Trago, but I supervise her. I was a team coordinator for a couple of years prior to coming into this role. And prior to that, I'd spent about 20 years working mostly in marine mammal and sea turtle bycatch reduction efforts and some fishery management work as well. And let's get back to the right whale because that seems to be driving most of the action right now. Where did the conversation around the right whale start? And where are we today within that broader conversation of, you know, NOAA, lawsuits, fishery managers, Green Mammal Protection Act. So the Atlantic Large Whale Take Reduction Team has always focused probably, well, always focused more on right whales than any of the other large whales. At the time that the team first met, humpback whales were were also listed as endangered. Fin whales are listed as endangered. Humpbacks have since been delisted or downlisted. And um, fin whales are... less near shore and more abundant. So while we worry about their takes, we don't focus as much on them. So we really have always focused the team on right whale recovery. And along the way, the team has made a lot of recommendations and a lot of regulations have been written that have incrementally modified the fisheries to reduce mortality and serious injury or to attempt to reduce mortality and serious injury. Two of the biggest examples that I would give are in in 2009, sinking ground line was required in most of the lobster fisheries and trap pot fisheries along the coast. In 2015, 2014, 2015, there were modifications to closed areas that had been in place for a while. They expanded the closed areas and they also started the trawling up measures that would reduce the amount of rope in the water column. In 2015, 14, when those regs were put in place, they thought that would reduce co-occurrence of right whales and ropes by about 38%. That was their goal. They didn't really have a way to determine what the reduction in risk would be. That was their proxy, was reduce co-occurrence. And unfortunately, during that same time in the 20 teens, somewhere, probably around 2013, right whales stopped showing up where they had traditionally been showing up. They started moving out of the normal areas or not staying in the areas for as long. And we didn't know where they were. So right whales shifted their distribution. A lot of them, we found out later, ended up in the Gulf of St. Lawrence in Canada, where there were no regulations to minimize impacts on right whales. We had our first entanglement 
that looked like it might have been Canadian offshore gear of some kind in early 2015. So we saw it in U.S. waters. It wasn't a rope that was familiar to us. We thought it was probably Canadian or either offshore lobster or maybe snow crab. There weren't really distinguishing features other than some splices that were different and it was a very heavy rope. So possibly as early as 2014, there were impacts that might have been occurring in the Gulf of St. Lawrence. Three mortalities were detected in the Gulf of St. Lawrence in 2015, suggesting that the fisheries up there were causing mortalities to right whales. And then come to find in 2017, before they had really figured out how to survey that area broadly, we had a dozen mortalities observed in the Gulf of St. Lawrence caused by both vessel strikes and fishery entanglements. A lot of the mortalities, by the time they were seen, they were so far gone that they actually couldn't determine the cause. of It was just a bag of bones. And then we also had five other mortalities observed in U.S. waters. As as everyone now knows, I think we have some consensus that an entanglement can occur someplace and a right well, they're very strong and they can drag gear miles and miles from the initial site of entanglement. So unless there are distinguishing marks or unless they have a buoy with, with a industry's marks on them, we can't tell where the source of the entanglements are. And all we really know is that somewhere after 2010, the average mortalities that, were, that can be estimated from the population model went from seven to 10 whales a year, something like that, to up to uh, 30 plus whales a year, of which we were seeing maybe a third of those. So we, we see about a third. We get some information off of some of them. We rarely get rope that's marked, but we know mortalities tripled somewhere in the 20 teens and the regulations we had in place weren't capturing the risk reduction that was needed to get to PBR. One of the things that we've heard from a lot of fishermen, and I, I'm sure you have heard as well, is this is not our problem. This is a Canadian problem, right? Can you explain a little bit about why, from the way the Marine Mammal Protection Acts works and ESA, it, it has become our problem? So uh, I don't think it's correct that it's not our problem. Um, PBR is less than one a year. If we assume that say half of the mortalities that have occurred in U.S. waters in the past occurred in fisheries and half by vessel strikes, really the two major sources of mortalities that we have documented, the only two that we've documented, then we were always over PBR. We, we had been using observed mortalities. Once a population could give us estimated mortality, we always knew we were under observing, we weren't observing everything. So we were always at least fivefold probably over the potential biological removal level. But perhaps that was sustainable using that term in a plain language way in that the population kept growing while that mortality was occurring. Once mortalities were occurring on both sides of the border, so range-wide mortality increased by threefold, that level of take in U.S. waters also wasn't sustainable. So we cannot recover the population by ourselves and it cannot just be recovered by reducing takes in fisheries. We are also working on recovery through a vessel speed rule that just was proposed for public comment. And we work closely with Canada trying to get them to do analogous rules in Canadian waters to reduce ship strikes and entanglements up in Canadian waters. So it really has to be a range-wide solution. The population's declined by quite a bit over the last decade, and it really, we need to cover all fronts. Um, under the Marine Protection Act, the requirement is PBR, that, that 
that U.S. fisheries demonstrably be able to show that the mortalities and serious injuries are below the potential biological removal level of less than one a year. So that is an MMPA requirement outside of the ESA recovery goals. Of course, we want the population to recovery. We want to do these range-wide recovery actions. But under the Marine Protection Act, the responsibility of the take reduction process is to get mortalities and serious injuries to below one a year. You've mentioned a couple of things. We've got mortalities, we've got co-occurrence, we've got risk. And those different pieces all go into how we determine when we need to act. It seems as though in the current conversation around the TRT, that risk is the current currency that we're dealing with. Can you describe what risk means in the TRT process? So in 2018, when the team was meeting, this was a big topic of the conversation. And it was important because we, we received a lot of proposals from team members and we didn't even know how to compare the value of the proposals. We could determine co-occurrence reduction to some extent. It was still very difficult to compare one proposal across another proposal. So the team asked us to develop a target, how high above PBR were we, and to develop a tool to help us make decisions and compare risk reduction proposals. The way we're using it is sort of a proxy for the reduction that will get us to the mortality and serious injury reduction. So I would say risk reduction we're using as a proxy. The decision support tool tries to identify risk areas by taking the best available information about distribution of the whales, the best available information about the distribution and amount of gear. And that gear component was heavily informed by the take reduction team over the last couple of years and by the state managers that manage a lot of that data to make sure that we're doing a better job capturing where the gear is and how much is out there because we don't have 100% reporting and we don't have accurate vessel tracking at this point. And then the risk component of the model really has to do with how the gear is configured. We know that lighter rope is less likely to cause mortality and serious injury than heavier rope. So basically oversimplifying a little bit, risk increases as you move offshore to heavier gear that is more lethal gear. An example of you know the most lethal gear we, we know about in my opinion is that snow crab gear, which uses a half inch or five eighths rope heavy trap below, whale thrashing that rope, getting constricting entanglement, it cannot break that rope. So that can become a lethal entanglement. And we've seen that happen. Some of our offshore gear is similar to that. It's half inch rope, it's very heavy. It's attached to long trawls of gear and a whale getting caught in that would have a much harder time breaking free. So the decision support tool assigns gear risk based on the configuration of the gear. The diameter as we understand it, and the basic configuration of what's below it. So those three things come together in this model and it identifies hotspot areas of risk. And generally those are areas where either there's a lot of lines and a lot of whales, there's a couple of areas like that. Mostly it's, there's a lot of whales and a few lines or a lot of lines and a few whales. A lot of our remaining risk, partly because of closures have been put in place, it's where there are, is one of those two things. A lot of whales, few lines. I would use a South Island restricted area below Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard as an example there where there are whales aggregating there, not that much lobster left there. So the number of lines aren't that high. And then a lot of lines and hardly any whales would be some of the places along Maine where we see hot spots. So any rope in the water considered risk. One of the things that we get questions about from fishermen is, is I'm sure you are as well, is like, well, I'm a 
inshore fishermen, I fish in the bays, why am I going to have to take regulations on when I've never seen one of these rail whales in my life? And you can understand the frustration that would come from that, but can how does that fit into the model when you're thinking about risk and and rope, which is essentially the 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 currency of risk, right? Is rope. Yeah. I mean, again, oversimplifying it, there's something like a million buoy lines that a right whale could encounter along its range. We we think there are about a hundred new scars attributed to entanglements a year based on New England Aquarium's right whale scarring discernment work that they do. That means any one rope has only a one in 10,000 chance of interacting with a right whale, serious or, or otherwise, just interacting. So Yes, we realize that for a lot of ropes, it's a really remote chance. And the model assumes it's really remote in places like up, up, up in the bays. And some of those areas are exempt entirely. Some of them are exempt from some of the more rigorous measures under the plan. So a lot of the measures in there are somewhat precautionary. It's a lighter rope. They're required to have a couple of weak inserts. Those are precautionary approaches because when PBR is less than one mortality or serious injury a, a year, a, a stray juvenile you know, juvenile mammals of all kinds tend to be the ones that show up in different areas. They're pushed out of optimal areas. They could end up in there. They could end up in a rope and you're, and you've exceeded the PBR with one whale. So in those unlikely to show up areas, the measures tend to be precautionary in the further offshore areas is where closures are implemented and, or much more trawling up is required or more weak insertions are required. So they don't get a full pass, but it is more of a precautionary approach than it is extreme measures approach. Yeah, very, very helpful because that that is a a conversation point that you can imagine takes place a lot on the docks when it comes. I've to heard that a few right? times. Yeah. I know you're not the architect of the the DST decision support tool, this model, but it seems as though that is driving a lot of the development of different rules and regulations, ideas. And essentially, it's an equation that's going to determine if we hit enough risk. How was that model developed within your team? And how are the decisions made within the team and within the model about the weighting of risk of the new data points that go into it or that come out of it? I think just you walking us through how you guys work within the DST would be really helpful for those of us that are that are standing a little bit outside. So it's always rough to work with models, right? They're not today world. They're using data from the past um, and trying to use the data that best predicts the future. So it's tricky regardless. This is considered the best available information. One component of it, as I said, is the whale distribution model that was created really for the Navy by Jason Roberts Lab in Duke University. And it takes systematic survey results and it looks at habitat covariates, water temperatures, or whatever covariates appear to be aligned with the observed right whale distribution. And it uses that to predict the distribution of right whales across its range where maybe you haven't had systematic surveys. But these other places have the conditions that would port sightings that have been been seen in the systematic surveys. That it, I, I believe it also applies some consideration of, you know, if you know you're seeing them in these two, two areas, there's only so many ways to get there. What's the most likely way it gets there? So, so it applies covariates and other information to model where the whales are likely to be. We actually will be having a presentation to the team, uh, which will be recorded in our website 
from Jason Roberts, who's the primary architect of that portion of the model. And he'll be able to answer some of these questions much better than I can. The gear distribution component of it, that is fishery dependent data, all those data sources, logbooks, observers, all those data sources were used. And then one-on-one -on -one conversations with every state's data people to make sure that we were capturing where the gear is distributed, how much. That, that was really very much informed also by team members who said, that doesn't look right here. Talk to this person, get that. So the team really looked at that in an iterative process and, and helped us really improve that. The risk model is really based on risk uh, according to line strength from a couple of scientific research papers that have been produced about uh, which strengths of line appear to be associated with serious injury and mortalities in large whales, as well as research done on the strength of whales based on their muscle mass and how, how their biomechanics. Uh, and then the gear configuration data in the model really comes from some observer data. Some of those fisheries are very well observed, like the ground fishery, as you know, some less well observed, like the lobster fishery. So that was also done through interviews done both by our staff and also by the contractors that worked on the original co-occurrence model. They did interviews with fishermen to develop model vessels and just to identify how most fishermen in areas are, are how they're configuring their gear, what kind of rope they're using. So the, the risk component is probably the part that's hardest to really wrap your head around. I, I will say that we do try to look at co-occurrence reduction. In the end, we often provide both numbers. So when we do our proposed rule and our environmental impact statement, we will probably produce both numbers. Co-occurrence, how much have we separated whales from rope? because that's going to be the best metric, getting rope away from the whales. That's a great way to go. And then the risk reduction will be another component that we'll give. So our goal is currently it's a coastwide risk reduction of 88 to 93%. We have already reduced risk by about 47% with the Northeast Lobster and Jonah Crab regs that were published in 2021. So we're about halfway there. And you know we will use the model to determine whether or not we appear to be there, be close to that. We're about halfway there, and we have a bunch of meetings taking place over the next few months. And all, all transparency, I am a proxy onto the take our take reduction team process for for Patrice uh, from the Maine Lobstermen's Association. So I get to sit in on all these meetings. They're going to be working to develop different alternatives, looking at the analysis, looking at the science that we're digging into. What do the six next six months look like for this process? And when is it trying to wrap up the suite of recommendations that would be being put out? So you, you mentioned that we are involved in litigation. We did ask the court to give us about two years to come to final regulations. So if we are allowed to do that, then our goal would be to have proposed regulations out sometime next, late next summer, probably. And then we would be going coastwide, doing public hearings to get public comments and get input from people. So with that timeline in mind, we are hoping the team will get us recommendations during our meeting the first week in December. So we'll be talking to them, providing them with a lot of these runs. It's such an iterative process. You know, they can bring back other ideas. We hope to get a few examples of packages that could get us there. And then Team members can go off, talk to their stakeholders that they represent, and then come back in the beginning of December with some 
fresh ideas or fresh ways of looking at it or new combinations. And then we hope in that week in December to get recommendations from the team. We'll then take that, do all those analyses, environmental impact analysis, economic analysis, all of those analyses will inform what we actually propose. We'll probably analyze multiple alternatives based on the team's recommendations and maybe other things the teams looked at and rejected or didn't come through as strong a recommendation. And those will be all analyzed in environmental impact statement. That statement and the proposed rules will come out for public. So that is another, probably the most important time for us to get input from fishermen and the general public on the regulations. If we get all of that next fall, early winter, I anticipate it would be a fairly long public comment period because we would hit every state on the coast because every state would be impacted. And then we would finalize the environmental impact statement, finalize the rule and roll out a final rule sometime perhaps around this time, two years from now, or around this time of the year. Uh, based on a recent court decision that the Marine Protection Act requires us to implement the measures within six months of the rulemaking, we would then be seeing implementation six months after the final rule is released. One of the things you've brought up was the take reduction team strives for consensus recommendations. And consensus is hard. And one of the slides that I think you showed at, at one of our, our meetings previously was that like from a mathematical perspective within the model, it doesn't look like we can achieve the risk reduction, even with a full shutdown of the Gulf of Maine. And so that, that was something that really popped within the fishing community of like, how could it be that we could not achieve the risk reductions necessary by shutting us down completely? And it may have been that we were misinterpreting that slide some, but I know that that has been a topic that has been brought up multiple times throughout our many conversations. But with that baseline for discussion, how do you start building a process that can end up in consensus when fishermen make a component of the, the take reduction scene process? they're being put in a really difficult spot to find that consensus and build towards consensus. And so this, this may be an unfair question for the person who you know, the, runs the team that is trying to make this, this whole thing work, but how do you build a process when there is that hanging out over a big chunk of the people who are sitting on the team? Just to review that slide that you're referring to, if a court was going to make a decision based on the Endangered Species Act component of the litigation, which we haven't talked much about, but the Endangered Species Act component is primarily wrapped around federal fisheries. So if a court was going to make a decision, if the team did not appear to be making progress, if NOAA did not appear to be doing what we need to do, which we think is best done, informed by the team, the court could say, I'm going to do something. And and it could be something as bold as federal waters, closed areas. So it probably would have been restricted to federal waters. So the purpose of that illustrative example was to say, it's got to be big and it can't just be federal waters. Even if we did do a federal fishery closure, there's a lot of risk in state waters. So we would also need to do some things in the states. But we also showed other examples. A lot of that gear for dual permanent fishermen can just all move into state waters. So we, when we close, we move risk unless we do a lines out closure. So another example we provided included some seasonal restrictions by LMAs, a couple of months in lobster management areas, because then we can say anyone with an LMA one permit has to take their gear out of the water. A lines out closure is worth a lot more 
than a moving lines closure. So again, it was just illustrative. Here's how a closure can work. These could be more effective and they're seasonal. They're not year round. In some areas, they weren't even important seasons. Unfortunately, I think the examples provided for Maine happen to be some of the valuable landing seasons. We don't want to do that. So TRT, what are other ideas we can do? So it was really more get people to understand it's big. We can't do little tiny things. We can't do a little weak link here or a little thing there. There needs to be some big pieces, but it needs to be informed by industry. What are the ideas? What what can be done? And in the end, when we write the environmental impact statement, we really do look at what can be done with the least economic impact. So hit our goal with the least economic impact. It, it doesn't mean no economic impact, and there is not a no economic impact alternative out there. But we will be measuring trade-offs in economics when we're actually choosing the preferred alternatives. As far as whether or not the team can get to consensus, you know, you're right. You know, someone in Florida doesn't doesn't want to do more. Someone in Massachusetts, which is surrounded by closures during some months, might not want to do more. Like people don't necessarily want to do more. We may not get consensus. I hope we'd get there. It's a huge challenge with a 60 member team. But you know, if we have some strong support for certain directions that can give us a lot of direction in developing that proposed. And again, it's proposed rule. It's not going to be final when it comes out next. So there's more time for people to have input. We haven't talked about the lawsuits very much. How are lawsuits going to be driving the decision-making process? Because you know, like right now you might have a six month period of time you got to do action, or you might have a two-year time period to do action, right? Like it, it does seem to be creating a disruption within the process as well. But, you know, where where do lawsuits and that litigation fit into the take reduction team? Are you guys working just blinders on moving forward? Or how does that work on your side? So, right, not blinders on. Two years actually to get to final rulemaking is really fast. Again, it is an iterative process. We would have liked time for more scoping. We want to make sure there's time for public comment. We want the team's input. So we're rushing the team and we are trying to make the case to the court that the team's input is invaluable to a successful solution here. We cannot do this without the team. We cannot do it well without the team. Yeah, we could do, you know, willy-nilly closures, which nobody wants to do. The solutions have to really have to come from industry and the states and the people who manage fisheries who've really thought about this stuff for a long time, that's where we're going to find some sustainable solutions. And honestly, you can't get compliance if industry is not part of it. We need their input on what's going to work for them, or they have no desire to comply, understandably. So I think we're trying to make the case to the court that we will do it as rapidly as possible, which is two years. And that allows us to get this really important input from the team and it allows us to take it on the road next year and get that public comments and fix what we get wrong in the proposed rule, fix what we get wrong in the environmental impact analysis. I think we've tried to make that case that that is invaluable to a successful rulemaking. And I'm hoping that that prevails with the court. So we're not blinders on, but we feel so strongly about that, that we are assuming we're gonna prevail in getting the two years. And if they tell us otherwise, We'll turn on a dime if we have to, because the courts make us. The, the problem with emergency rulemaking is the only thing you can do immediately is closures. Gear modifications are hard. Gear allocation struggles are hard. The only thing that is fast is a, is a closure. So I think, I hope the courts recognize that, that 
you know, full federal closure might be simple, might be fast to do, not a good idea. Informed by the team who put a lot of thought and time into it and informed by further public comment when a proposed rule comes out, it's just the way to go. So we're hoping that we prevail. Colleen, thank you so much for taking some time out of your day to walk us through this. It was really helpful for me to understand a little bit more about the inner workings of the, the team and where we can take this over over the next period of months and, and years. Really appreciate you and your team. I know it's been a, a difficult slog over this jumping around and through hoops and everything else that happens because of some of these lawsuits that are driving action faster than many are comfortable and definitely much faster than the fishing community is comfortable with. Yeah. But we do recognize a lot of the hard work and energy and effort that has gone into this from from your team. So thank you again for more of your time as we try and understand this process better and, and share what's happening with the fishermen and broader fishing community through, through the Take Reduction team. Well, thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. And also, you know, big shout out to the team members from Maine and the alternates, including yourself. You guys have also been really working hard. And like you said, probably the hardest job on this team is the fishermen who are trying to represent their stakeholders and yet trying to come to consensus on making compromises and offers and then have to take bad news back to their communities. So I really appreciate how hard this is on them and that they're still at the table is something I'm grateful for every day. Colleen, thank you so much. Thank you. And good luck to us all. Maine Coast Doc Talk is a production of the Maine Coast Fishermen's Association an industry-based nonprofit that identifies and fosters ways to restore the fisheries of the Gulf of Maine and sustain Maine's fishing communities for future generations. For more information about our work, to make a donation, or to listen to previous episodes of Doc Talk, you can visit our website, maincoastfishermen.org.